This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. My name is Chris Martin. I'm the Outreach Director at the Davis Center, and I'm here today with Dr. Jennifer Wilson, who's a postdoctoral fellow in Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Pennsylvania. Jennifer specializes in Russian literature of the 19th century, with an emphasis on the nexus of sexuality and radical political thought. She founded the Association for Students and Teachers of Color in Slavic Studies in 2011, and that organization transitioned to become the Association for Diversity in Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies, which is part of the larger ACES organization. Today we're going to discuss issues of race and diversity within Slavic studies, both the idea of working to ensure that more students of color and from minority backgrounds engage in the field, as well as some of Jennifer's recent writing, which looks at the intersection between critical race studies, American history, and Russian studies. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I recently came across a piece of your writing which you addressed a question that I'm also commonly asked, which is, why Russia? Why are you studying Russia? What engaged you in Russia? I get asked that often. Like I said, people often seem stymied by my choice, especially when they realize that I don't have a connection. There's an assumption, right, mm -hmm. that you have a connection to Russian studies. Otherwise, why would you have made that choice? Um, and as a woman of color, what does that question mean to you mm. as somebody who is engaged in this field? Absolutely. Um, yeah, people ask me that question all the time, too. And they do ask me if I'm Russian, but I don't look um, very Russian. So when people ask me that, it's sort of strange. They're like, are you Russian? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, they really can't quite figure it out. Um, but I, you know, fell in love with Russia completely by accident. I took a class called Literature and Revolution, not realizing that it was in the Slavic Studies Department. I was, you know, an freshman in college. I didn't really understand what departments were. I assumed every literature class was in the English department. And so I arrived at this class and it was, you know, an avant-garde 20th century Soviet literature class. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm just going to politely sit this class out because <laughs> I don't know anything about Russia and I'll just sort of never return. But it was so interesting. And actually they were discussing race, uh, believe it or not. They were talking about uh, uh, Andre Bailey's Petersburg and representations of Asian identity in the Russian avant-garde. And so I went from thinking, oh, I know nothing about this, to thinking, oh, well, I actually know a little bit about this. You know, I feel comfortable talking about race. And a lot of it was about Russia's national identity as a country between Europe and Asia. And I just felt that it wasn't so distant from the things that I was already interested in. And so I would say that conversation was a way for me as a woman of color to feel comfortable in Slavic studies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I've been really adamant about interdisciplinarity as a really mm -hmm. um, key part of diversity. Right. So it's both happy accident, but also the fact that there was that conversation that made you feel like you had a foot yes. in that space and that you could engage and have something to share too, especially as a, a freshman in college, which is a yes. place where you're already trying to figure out mm -hmm. where your space is. So as a field, Slavic mm -hmm. studies does not have a lot of diversity, racial or ethnic diversity, really, outside of potentially the, the Slavic region itself. So what are some of the ways that you and the groups that you work with, at mm -hmm. SEAS in particular, are trying to encourage students of color to enter and then stay in the field? I would say that we don't do a lot about encouraging students to enter the field mm -hmm. because we usually don't encounter students until they've already Made had the some kind of you know connection with Slavic studies. Otherwise, they really just wouldn't be on our radar. Um, but I would say that we really try to make sure that they feel that this is an inclusive field, 
Uh, so one of my experiences studying uh, abroad as an undergraduate was just reading these really frightening stories about racist violence in Russia. I was just absolutely terrified. You know, I was so excited to go to Russia. And then I read these articles and I was just absolutely crestfallen. And I really had no one to talk to. I had no one to ask. There were no resources that I could look up about studying abroad as a person of color in Russia. And that is just so isolating. And then my professors really didn't know what to say to me, which is doubly isolating because you start to think, well, why don't you care? Like, why aren't you concerned about about these questions? And so I think that a big part of what we do is trying to fill that gap. So we have a blog series called Minority Voices. It's about, you know, minority experiences in the former Soviet Union. And so we collect testimonials from students of color, from queer students, from students with disabilities who write about their experiences studying in Russia, Ukraine, Central Asia. And so that's just important for me as a resource, just remembering a time when there was nothing like that and now being able to see all these testimonials is really moving for me. Yeah, it's really helpful for those students yeah. who are embarking on their own first yeah. journey mm -hmm. to the region. And the other side of the coin, of course, is trying to ensure that more faculty, more scholars within the field are looking at Slavic studies with the additional lens of diversity, ethnic studies, looking at underrepresented populations and how can we encourage that kind of work, at least if not necessarily just in research, but in the classroom, because it obviously it did have an impact. Mm -hmm. You're a case study of one, but it had an impact on how you felt in entering this field. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not quite sure why it's not already happening because it's already there. I mean, mm -hmm. I think if you look at the 19th century Russian literary canon, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Pushkin, you don't have to insert conversations about ethnicity into these books. They already exist there. So I'm not quite sure why they're not being discussed. Um, I think, you know, the course I taught in Russia, the Harlem Renaissance from New York to Tashkent was to some extent an attempt to model what an inclusive Slavic studies class could look like. But I don't think that the Russian canon or the Slavic studies canon need the African-American experience to have those conversations. They definitely exist vis-a-vis -vis Central Asia, the Jewish experience in Russia, the Tatar experience in Russia. These are already conversations that are just waiting to happen. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why people in the field haven't taken them up. You've written uh, quite a bit, at least sort of uh, in blog, sort of casual writing, which is great for an audience that is not looking to academic journals about the class that you taught, which was mm -hmm. so interesting. And it seems like a really nice way to sort of spread the word and to share mm -hmm. the model that you that you chose to employ there. Could you talk a little bit more about that course, which was, again, the Harlem Renaissance from New York to Tashkent, and it was taught at the Russian State University for the Humanities. Can you talk a little bit about how you designed that course for mm -hmm. a Russian audience, what your expectations were from those students, and if expectations were met. Well, it was a bit of a challenge because they were, uh, so I was teaching at the Russian State University for the Humanities for the Center for Russian American Studies. And so the class had to be an American Studies class. And so I was trying to think, okay, what kind of an American Studies class can I teach that would still be interesting for me as someone who 
really wants to teach, you know, Russian literature or some or Russian cultural studies. And also the students were, they were graduate students, but their English was not great. I mean, I didn't feel like they could read, you know, a new English novel every single week. So I was trying to think about something where I could use a lot of poetry, where I could use music, where I could use material that was a bit easier um, for students who were still learning English to process. And it was also in the wake of the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri. And I was feeling really passionate about race issues at the time. And, you know, I knew I had to go to Russia and I was feeling frustrated that I couldn't be in America at the time with everything that was going on. So I think this class was a way for me to connect with everything that was going on with Black Lives Matter in the United States. And did you have expectations of the class based on your teaching of American students or what your expectations were potentially of a Russian audience and how they would engage with the material? I would say that my expectation at first was that this was going to be just so radically new for them. And I think one of the things I talked about in my blog series for NYU was that I almost sort of forgot how much racism was a part of Soviet propaganda against the United States and that actually the students were far more conversant in these issues. So I actually really had a fantastic experience with them. They were very open talking about these issues. They were very respectful. And um, one of the things I mentioned in my blog series was that they didn't seem at all uncomfortable talking Mm -hmm. about race, which I felt was very different from American students. I mean, I can't imagine teaching an all-white classroom about the Harlem Renaissance as a black woman and there not being some kind of discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, But these students, I just, you know, I don't think they think of it as their problem. It's Mm -hmm. not their past. They have no feelings of guilt associated with it. A funny thing that happened was the last week of class, um, Apple had just come out with their like multicultural emojis. Mm -hmm. And um, my students came up to me and they were like, Jennifer, we're using the African-American emojis, you know, in an act of solidarity with you. And I just really don't think American students would do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was very, it was very heartwarming. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. A lot of the work in your course, the writers of the Harlem Renaissance, they, they did a lot of traveling to mm-hmm. the Soviet Union, especially during the 1920s and 30s. And um, the experience of African-Americans traveling or living abroad has a significant history during mm-hmm. this time. So Martin Luther King traveled to India, James Baldwin moved to France. And what was the significance of um, the African-American community traveling to Russia during the early Soviet period? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, you have Kate Baldwin Stephen Lee, who've written really fantastic books about the experiences of African-Americans in the Soviet Union during this period. And they talk a lot about the importance of decentering Paris and really offering a more expansive notion of the black diaspora and of the Harlem Renaissance diaspora. But I think that what the Soviet Union offered that you know Paris did not offer was a real kind of testing ground for whether or not socialism could be the solution to the race problem. And I think that was the the number one um, source of fascination for the figures like Langston Hughes and Claude McKay who I, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who I write about. It's a really interesting idea about how that expectation of what the USSR might mean changed over time yeah. as well, of mm-hmm. course. And it's great to have some additional resources to look into for people who are curious about that history. 
you have already referenced the the Black Lives Matter campaign, and in the piece of your writing, you take a look at a music video made mm-hmm. by Pussy Riot, yeah. which is called I Can't Breathe, and of mm-hmm. course that references death of Eric Garner at the hands of the NYPD. And if you've seen the video, you see that the, the two women from Pussy Riot are wearing Russian military uniforms, and yeah. they're being buried alive, but they're referencing this Black Lives Matter movement. And so I wonder if you could talk about sort of why you think sort of a Pussy Riot, which are sort of a a punk protest collective Russian musical group. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They would conflate the issues. They would bring together the issue of uh, Russian incursion into Ukraine with the Black Lives Matter campaign here in the U.S. And what significance that meant for them and for other people who would be viewing that video trying to draw meaning. Is definitely not the first group or, or source to do that. I mean, I think the black experience is used by all sorts of uh, political campaigns, protest movements as a source of inspiration for, you know, how to deal with problems at home. So I think, you know, one example of that would be the popularity of hip hop music amongst a number of protest movements abroad, including in Ukraine, for example. But I think that in the case of Pussy Riot is that in many ways, Russia has a history of not talking about its own ethnic problems and nationalist problems by talking about race issues in America. Mm -hmm. Um, It often becomes the only way, the only language that they really have to articulate conversations that have really been historically censored Mm -hmm. at home about Mm -hmm. the treatment of Mm -hmm. Ukrainians, of Central Asians, of you know, non-Russians in general. Mm -hmm. So what parallels or differences do you see between these modern intersections and the 20th century intersections that you Mm -hmm. look at in your classroom through the the Holland Renaissance or through those writers? Well, the major difference, I would say, is that you don't have African-Americans looking to Russia anymore whatsoever Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a source of inspiration about race issues. And I think this is really going to come up with the World Cup. I'm hoping that the issues faced by African and uh, soccer players and players of color, really just abominable treatment that they face in Russia Um, you know, having bananas thrown at them, really not being able to go outside, Mm -hmm. you know. um, So I hope that that will get the same attention that the treatment of the LGBTQ community received uh, during the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's the number one difference Mm -hmm. is that the Soviet Union, right, we kind of know how the story ends. You know, I think, you know, I'm reading Langston Hughes and Audre Lorde and, you know, reading what they say about the Soviet Union and what its future might be, but we already know the answer. Right. right. So that's the major difference. Right. So I guess my last question for you is, you know, we, you talked, you referenced a little bit how the USSR used American race relations um, as propaganda mm-hmm. to support their own system um, in sort of particularly um, as they headed towards a more dichotomous mm-hmm. us versus them. How do you see... Um, this exploration of race relations, problems with um, potentially racial attitudes within Russia. Um, how do you see that the changing U.S.-Russia relationship, which is getting more and more difficult given the recent um, uh, interaction between Russia and Ukraine and some of Putin's actions, do you see the, the tension within the U.S.-Russia relation 
sort of dribbling down to conversations about race on either side. Do you see Russia looking to make use of problems within American race relations to shore themselves up in some way or to make those same kind of propagandistic? Absolutely. So I think with the uprisings in Ferguson, you absolutely saw Russian press making use of this. They, for instance, called it the Black Maidan. Um, So that came up Mm -hmm. where Obama's Maidan. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of an example of contemporary Russian politicians and Russian press using the Black Lives Matter movement basically to say, stay out of our backyard, you know, deal with your problems at home. And I think they have a point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm not defending what they're doing in Mm -hmm. um, Ukraine, but I mean, I certainly think that the U.S. can come off very hypocritical in its mm-hmm. foreign policy. Yeah. And I think that, that the, you know, the events over the past few years, starting with Trayvon Martin, you know, all the way to Sandra Blonde, I think these have really been important for calling into question U.S. foreign policy, particularly its its claims to, to democracy building mm-hmm. when we have such um, glaring examples of lack of democracy here in the States. Mm-hmm. Well, we really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us. And thanks. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.